0: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. The crimes of Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, are now, thankfully, widely known his brutal and sometimes illegal military campaigns against Creeks and Seminoles, his consuming presidential ambition to remove, in contemporary terms, ethnically cleanse Indian nations from what became the American Southeast, his vast and profitable slave labor camp, and his unyielding commitment to white supremacy comes to mind. Fewer people know that Andrew Jackson also raised an Indian child. In the aftermath of the Battle of Talishachi, a village in the Creek Nation aligned with the 1813 Red Stick Uprising against U.S. expansion, General Jackson found a young Creek boy clinging to his dead mother, murdered by soldiers under Jackson's command. The siege of the village had killed some 180 people. We shot him down like dogs, remembered Davy Crockett, who was then serving in the Tennessee militia. The boy, Lynn Coya, Jackson spared, however, Writing to his wife that the child evoked, quote, unusual sympathy, and sent him to live with his family at their plantation in Tennessee. Quote, He is a savage, but one that fortune has thrown into my hands, Jackson wrote to his wife. It's not clear how Lincoya was treated as an adopted child of the Jacksons, but there's indication he was being groomed for West Point. At the very least he fared better than Jackson's slaves. Ultimately, Linkoya died from tuberculosis as a teenager in 1828. At first, these might strike us as contradictory impulses. On the one hand, Jackson, architect of genocidal war and ethnic cleansing. On the other, Jackson, benevolent adopter. But in U.S. settler colonialism, these tendencies do not necessarily compete. Margaret Jacobs, my guest today, is graduate chair and chancellor's professor of history at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In 2009, she published White Mother to a Dark Race, Settler Colonialism, Maternalism, and the American West and Australia, 1880-1940. to 1940. In this Bancroft prize-winning book, Jacobs explored a common experience in Australia and U.S. indigenous communities in the late 19th and early 20th century. The removal of their children to institutions whose goal was assimilation. Like Jackson, the managers of these institutions, in which white women played a key role, cast themselves as benevolent, an alternative to the physical violence of the so-called Indian Wars. In reality, these policies inflicted great trauma and served to extend settler control over indigenous peoples and their lands. Her new book, just out from the University of Nebraska Press, is a generation removed, the fostering and adoption of indigenous children in the post-war world. Here she carries the story forward. No longer kidnapped to government-run schools, the second half of the 20th century witnessed an explosion of adoption and fostering of indigenous children by private, non-Indian families. By the late 1960s, some 25 to 35% of Native children had been separated from their homes and communities. While this book copiously documents the many traumas and violences of this project, it also chronicles Indian women's resistance, eventually leading to the passage of the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act. I began by asking Professor Jacobs how she came to devote so much of her professional life and energies to this subject.
1: Well, I started out... Um, even, uh, back in graduate school, one of the questions I was just most, became most interested in was relationships between white women and Native American women in history. And, uh, my first book was really about kind of two generations of white women who traveled to New Mexico and their relationships that they developed with Pueblo peoples there, both men and women. And, um, As I got more and more into this topic, I just started to notice how much white women were involved in um, Native women's family life and how much they were often engaged in trying to change Native family life or sometimes denigrating Native family life, especially Indian women or uh, Indigenous women. Um, So I moved kind of from a perspective of looking at – Indian white women's relationships as encounters more toward looking at it as a kind of colonial uh, imposition on the part of white women, that it was part of a much larger project. And so um, after I finished the first book and I, I went to Australia um, to give a paper about it and with some uh, Australian feminist scholars who were also working on white women's relationships with Aboriginal people, And um, I ended up going for a week before and going to the National Library to see. I was just curious, you know, what were white women in Australia doing in regards to Aboriginal people? And I just happened to hit Australia at a historical moment, not too long after the Bringing Them Home report had come out and exposed what was going on with the Stolen Generations of, um, you know, all these Aboriginal children who'd been swept up by their state government's put in institutions and or adopted out later. And um, so there was kind of this backdrop where I was going into the archives to look at white women's archival collections who were supposedly, these white women were involved in Aboriginal affairs. And I thought, wow, I wonder if any of these white women were involved in these policies. And that kind of, uh, you know, got me really interested. And of course, I found almost immediately that they had been involved in these policies and in ways I didn't, wouldn't have predicted Um, to some extent, I I assumed, uh, you know, that they would, they were championing, championing this sort of universal motherhood and this universal maternalist ethos. So I thought, Oh, they'd be champions of indigenous women's and their right to keep their children. And in reality, Um, I found that in the archival, archival record that most of these white women were not champions of indigenous women in Australia. And so then I started like spinning out all sorts of questions. Well, wow, you know, I wonder what was going on in the United States. You know, was there the same sort of forcible removal of indigenous children? And if so, were white women involved in it too, in the similar way? And, um, So then I just started finding so much material, and I found a lot of material about indigenous women activists uh, starting in Australia who worked on this issue. And I found that there was this incredible intergenerational work by uh, two women in a particular family, Margaret Tucker and her daughter, Molly Dyer. And I realized that Margaret Tucker had been an activist who was trying to stop the institutionalization, the removal, and institutionalization of Aboriginal children, and her daughter Molly Dyer was involved in as an activist trying to stop the fostering and adoption of Aboriginal children in a later era. And so, my uh, I just became so um, curious about how all of these uh, issues were playing out, not just in Australia, but in, in the U.S. Um, and Whether there was a comparable uh, policies going on in both places, uh, comparable experiences of indigenous people, indigenous mothers who lost their children, uh, comparable activism. And so it all just kind of has snowballed, really. I originally thought White Mother would be about uh, the period from 1880 to 1980, but I couldn't fit in all the incredible information I'd found about fostering and adoption in that book. So I decided to do a second book <laughs> that focused on that alone. Mm.
0: So a, a Generation Removed is, is as, as you suggest, about the post-war world when um, when the adoption of indigenous children by non-native families, by white families, at least in the U.S., really uh, skyrockets. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you suggest in the prologue and, and as you uh, more deeply explore in White Mother, this is a story here in this book, A Generation Removed with Many Entangled Precedents. Um, yes. So in order to understand this post-war phenomenon that is the uh, subject matter of this book here, what do we need to understand about the preceding decades? Um, I, I guess even centuries, but what is most important heading into this period that the book covers that, that readers should know or or people should be thinking about?
1: Hmm. Great question. Well, I think if people were to look at every individual case uh, in which an, an indigenous child was removed from its family and uh, put in a non-indigenous family, um, you could just engage in a very long battle, really, over what was best for this child, and um, there's all sorts of factors to consider, and um, But without a historical perspective on this, um, I think something's really lacking because there were just so many decades uh, before the post-World War II era in which Native people were subjected to a policy of often forcibly removing their children. Not always forcibly, but often. Um, So this starts out in the late – it starts out long before that, but – one, one place this story starts is in the late 19th century with the development of assimilation policies in the United States and similar policies in Australia and Canada that were known by slightly different titles. Um, and all of these places deemed that in order for their uh, governments to solve the so-called, whether it was the Indian problem or the Aboriginal problem, Uh, In order to solve that problem, it was best to try to take uh, children, indigenous children, away from their families and communities and raise them in um, environments where they wouldn't uh, fall prey, as they saw it, to uh, the problems of their communities and their families. And they uh, would be raised as Christians. They would um, be you know, sort of assimilated into American or Australian or Canadian culture. Um, They would uh, stop speaking their native languages. They'd start speaking English. Um, And a lot of the rhetoric about this was quite, you know, flowery and and humanitarian. Um, But ultimately, a lot of it was about preparing these children to take on very unskilled, menial labor at the kind of fringes Of uh, the settler colonial societies that they were living in. So long before the post-World War era, this policy and practice of indigenous child removal was going on in all three of these nations. And um, so the post-World War era really, you can't really understand what's going on with the fostering and adoption of children if you don't first know about this earlier era in which it was much more common to institutionalize children after removal than it was to place them in families. Hmm.
0: So so what does happen after World War II? Why does the federal government in the United States and elsewhere and, and these other settler colonial nations make um, adoption and fostering of indigenous children a priority? And, and what's the relationship to termination as a federal mm-hmm. policy that, that really develops in the post-war period?
1: Well, thanks. Um, I think there's two things going on, and I'll talk about both of them, sure. that lead toward fostering and adoption. And one is what's happening in kind of post-World War II popular culture in all three nations, of uh, the kind of rise of liberalism, um, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but there's also changes in all three places in terms of the bureaucracies that deal with indigenous peoples. And in the United States, um, the change in federal policy, as you mentioned, is toward what was called termination. And um, this comes after about 15 years of a different policy um, in the United States that was enacted by the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, John Collier, during Franklin Roosevelt's uh, presidential administrations. And Collier had really, you know, he'd been a gadfly who – who uh, challenged the boarding school policies in the United States, the removal of indigenous children. Um, He championed day schools for children, learning of their own languages. Um, He had lots of faults, and not all indigenous people liked Collier, but he had moved federal policy slightly toward a kind of more self-determination for Indian peoples. I always call him sort of a paternalistic Mm self-determinationist, so... Um, but, um, after World War II, Congress, um, looks with some members of Congress look with dismay at what's happening in, um, Indian country. This is an era of greater affluence in general in American life, and they see that there's still a lot of poverty, um, there's really high levels of unemployment, low levels of education, Lots of social problems on reservations, and um, in short, they sort of say, "Oh, we've you know we still have an Indian problem," um, as they called it, and um, they blamed Collier and they blamed his um, his retreat from assimilation policies of the uh, late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, and so they um, articulated a different policy of termination which meant uh, that tribes should uh, no longer have any kind of special status or special relationship to the federal government, no longer any kind of trust relationship that they had earlier negotiated through treaties. Um, they should now dispose of all their tribal assets, communal anything that they still held communally, land, property, etc., um, and... Alongside this notion of termination um, was the notion that uh, Indian peoples would be better off if they relocated to urban areas um, and uh, again assimilated into modern American life. Um, The way that this relates to uh, fostering and adoption was that several things happened in termination. One of them was that the federal government was basically trying to get out of the business of dealing with Indian people. And they wanted States to take over a lot of the services that the Bureau of Indian affairs had uh, provided up to that point. And one of the things that they wanted to do was they wanted to get rid of, and strangely enough, they wanted to get rid of boarding schools. Finally, it dawned on them. These weren't working well for them. They weren't leading to assimilation. They were costly. Um, So the federal government in general, not entirely, but wanted to get rid of a lot of the boarding schools and turn over the education of children and the social welfare of children to the states uh, as part of termination policy. And when they did so, the states, uh, which didn't, you know, didn't have many people in state administrations who had any experience working with Indian people um, and Often had quite hostile relationships with uh, reservation communities in their in their boundaries. Um, the state, so the states got involved in um, child welfare um, in this post war era, and you see a lot of them um, suddenly having huge influxes of children into their welfare systems that they um, have no experience dealing with and and have a lot of hostility to. So that's that's one way in which the termination era sort of. Um, intersects with uh, increasing fostering and adoption of uh, indigenous children.
0: Hmm. So in this, in this period, um, bureaucrats of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and state agencies um, like to pretend that these adoption and fostering programs were responding to uh, a self-evident need, uh, as you write. Right. But in fact, you have these figures like Arnold Lislow who actively worked, you write, to both make children more available to adoption uh, as well as cultivating uh, a demand uh, among mm-hmm. white families. Uh, how did how did people like Lislow go about achieving those goals, and, and what motivated them?
1: Well, uh, I should back up a little bit sure. to explain that um, even though the federal government with the Bureau of Indian Affairs wanted to transfer a lot of responsibilities for indigenous children to the state governments, it also still had um, many children that it was responsible for through the boarding school system. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it had actually put resources for about 10 years, starting in the 50s, to these Indian child welfare consultants who their job was primarily to try to figure out what do we do with children who... Um, are in the schools right now, and we want to return them to their families and um, out of the schools. But they found that sometimes it was really quite difficult to do that um, because their families were quite poor. Sometimes their families were relying on the boarding schools to help put meals on the table and things like that. So um, Lislow, Arnold Lislow, was a BIA employee. That was hired in the late 50s, in 1958, to promote a new program called the Indian Adoption Project. And over the course of the 50s, um, bureaucrats in the Bureau of Indian Affairs started to think that, well, one solution to these children um, who we've displaced (laughs) through our past policies um, is uh, let's promote their fostering. Let's promote their adoption into white families. So LISLO start, uh, is is uh, given um, the directorship of this new program and it's a program that's uh, a partnership between the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Child Welfare League of America. And The Child Welfare League of America was an umbrella organization that had many, many member organizations across the country. Some public uh, state agencies, some private adoption agencies, all sorts of stuff like that. So Together, the BIA and the Child Welfare League worked together to uh, promote this new project of uh, adoption of Indian children in non-Indian, mostly white, families. And so, as you mentioned, LISLO worked both to increase the demand for Indian children and their availability for adoption. Some of the things he did uh, was that he went and met with tribes and and tried to talk them into um, um, you know making it easier for their children to be adopted um, so in many cases, he uh, also worked with state governments to kind of change their legislation to make it possible for Indian children to be adopted across state lines because um, there were lots of laws that made it more difficult for people to adopt across the states. So he was constantly trying to uh, engage in these efforts uh, to change laws, even to make adoption easier. Um, he uh, was, promoting adoption not only through his program but through the states so he would work really closely with the states and you can find all sorts of correspondence between him and state administrators of child welfare or social services um, in which they talk about how grateful they are to him for for uh, showing this possibility for um, uh, promoting adoption of Indian children so he's He's very much responsible for creating a climate where um, it becomes almost normalized and natural for the idea that uh, Indian children um, to solve the so-called problem of Indians generally and to solve the so-called problem of uh, Indian children who he called forgotten. um, His idea was simply to. Uh, promote their fostering and adoption.
0: Mm -hmm. There's an incredibly telling quote. I mean, there are many throughout the book um, about uh, about this sort of desire that that gets generated among white families. You have this uh, quote from this woman in, in Monticello, Indiana, writing to the BIA in the 1950s. She writes, is it possible for you to help us find a small boy of Indian parentage or perhaps a mixed blood for us to adopt? Uh, my husband and I have some Indian blood in our veins, and we think an Indian child or one who is at least part Indian would just suit us to a um, T. What, what's going on here? Uh, what's what's motivating this, this kind of uh, specific desire among some white families in the period for not just adopting um, children who are perceived as being from sort of unstable or unsafe areas, but particularly Native children?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that was the other part of the i guess the other side of the coin i found so there's the bureaucracy right. there's we could explain all this by looking at what's going on in at the governmental level and and in short a lot of that is based on cost cutting and and lislow and others were determining wow we can save a lot of money if we move children who we think don't belong with their families not move them out of institutions and move them into families But the other part of this is what's going on in the popular culture. And this is what I referred to earlier as thinking about the kind of um, trends after World War II towards sort of greater uh, liberalism. Um, And by that, I mean, in part, I mean a kind of uh, this notion, um, many uh, white Americans developed in this period, late 50s, 60s, that I would call kind of colorblind liberalism um the notion that color doesn't matter race doesn't matter we're all part of the human family and in many ways this is very progressive for this period right you know like when you think about what's going on in the the south and the civil rights movement these were often very progressive people who were claiming that you know they were willing to adopt a child of a different race um they uh were people who believed that you know race shouldn't matter and um so there's, there's that impulse that's developing in this period. There's also, I, w- I found something really fascinating is that a lot of uh, mainline churches, Protestant churches, were becoming really interested in and concerned with uh, American Indians in the post-war period. And they started things like study groups and um, the National Council of Churches did a big study on Indian people in the 50s. And one of the things that was also fascinating that I found is that many of these churches, their original position was very anti-termination. And they had pretty um, remarkable critiques of federal policy. And they, when they looked at the poverty that they saw on Indian reservations, they often blamed it on federal policy or they blamed it on... Um, economic greed on the part of the neighbors to the states that these um, tribes were based in. And so the churches for a while had these pretty radical views in my, in my mind of uh, what was causing Indian, um, the persistence of Indian poverty and other problems. Um, But gradually in the fifties, and I think in part because of the cold war and the um, sort of, anti-communism of the era that that labeled anybody who had any kind of this you know these economic critiques it labeled these people as communists and and i think the churches retreated very much from their pretty radical critiques of what was going on Mm -hmm. and so a lot of americans um the kind of left progressive americans Uh, religious Americans, which many people were very religious in this era and, of course, still are, but um, they really were concerned with American Indians and um, wanted to do something about it. And what I found was that Lislow and the Indian Adoption Project and other people who were working to promote adoption were channeling this impulse that a lot of Americans had to reach out to American Indians, to do something positive, um, to reconcile in some sense with them. They channeled this impulse toward adoption. Um, So you find these, a lot of so-called well-meaning American white American families writing to the Bureau of Indian affairs, writing to state governments, asking about whether there's Indian children to adopt um and i th- I found this really fascinating because um somehow Indian children became almost um, somebody that constantly people referred to them as oh they're they're all orphans, they're all forgotten um they they were seen as the most needy of all children um And a lot of Americans, I think, saw this as a gesture of great goodwill and benevolence and humanitarianism to reach out to adopt um, an Indian child. Mm.
0: So as those um, churches, you have this sort of uh, almost radical or critical critique of the federal government for being responsible for um, persistent issues of poverty. As they retreat, you have uh, increasingly academics and social scientists in particular, with their own set of uh, explanations for what you call the, the plight narrative. Um, mm-hmm. and, and at this moment, you have the sort of pathologization um, mm-hmm. of uh, indigenous people living in po- poverty. So what role do academics and social scientists uh, play in this moment uh, alongside the BIA figures, alongside the churches in, mm-hmm. the, in the fostering and adoption program?
1: Well, that's a great question, too. And it was another piece of the puzzle that I found um, was I I do talk about this, what I call the plight narrative, because a lot of the articles that are coming out in this period in popular journals um, and in academic work as well by sociologists and anthropologists um, all paint this really, really bleak picture of American Indian life. And they all repeat these very grim statistics about unemployment, suicide rates, infant mortality rates, suicide, alcoholism, etc. Um, and, it, and it's not that these problems did not exist. It's just that a lot of the literature in this period, the sociological literature, just completely shrunk Indian life down to this very narrow um, statistical analysis rather than showing um, the like whole view uh, and everything that was going on in Indian life, the, that, that there were other things than that. And I thought this was really remarkable because having worked on an earlier period, and especially working on the 20s and 30s, that was an era in which a lot of white Americans you know were representing American Indian life in much more holistic ways. They still showed that they were poverty stricken and having um, social problems, but they also showed them to have like vital cultural ceremonies um, and uh, languages etc um, so in this period, everything about indian life uh, the way it's represented by non Indians becomes really shrunken and um the i do call it a kind of pathologization of indian life which really plays into the idea that indian families can't raise their own children um they don't have the resources the strengths um the skills to do this we're gonna have to step in um and we i mean we white people are gonna have to step in and and do something about this and rescue their children um So um, this all kind of goes along with some of the other trends we see in this period, like the Daniel Patrick Moynihan report, uh, Oscar Lewis's uh, report on Puerto Ricans in America. Both of, both of those uh, sociological works also portrayed in this case, black families in Puerto Rican families as, as very much um, pathological. And interestingly, they do so in many similar ways by showing um, or by claiming that their family arrangements and the strength of women in their communities was a sign that they were dysfunctional and, and indeed pathological.
0: I want to uh, shift here and talk a bit about the impact, um, mm-hmm. often devastating impact of the, of the adoption regime in Indian country. Um, and to start, I want to ask a bit actually about the process of of this research. It seems to me that even even more than your last book, which focused on the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, um, you're dealing here with um, with often traumatic experiences of many folks who are still alive um, yeah unlike unlike the the folks of the uh, late nineteenth century uh, that's tough work I, for anybody to do I would imagine i mean i'm I'm working on a project in the early nineteenth century, but I imagine it it carries um, particular care and responsibility for a non-native scholar in in sort of mm-hmm. dealing with these very sensitive decisions about how to move forward. Um, how did you approach this material? How did you go about this research, um, particularly as you move later in the period uh, on the impact that that this adoption mm-hmm. program had?
1: Mm. Well, that's that's a great question too. I um, I guess I just always wanted to respect anybody's decision about whether they wanted to talk to me about it or not. Um, and I I always followed every lead I had and, and tried to always contact anyone uh, who I thought might be interested. Some of those people wanted to talk to me, and some people did not. I mean, these are really painful things to talk about. People seem still ashamed to talk about it if they've lost a child or something, and um, they still... I think often feel a kind of stigmatization of that. Um, so, what I did was, I, I mean, I just followed every lead, uh, tried to approach everybody in with a spirit of respect uh, mm-hmm. for their experience, um, and uh, along the way, I met various people who were willing to talk to me and wanted to talk and wanted uh, to expose some of the things that went on in this period. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what kind of pressure did um, did Indian women experience in this period to put their newborn infants up up for adoption, and who is applying that pressure?
1: Well, a lot of you, you find a lot of church agencies like Lutheran Social Services, Catholic Social Services, as well as state agencies uh, were were applying pressure through social workers, really, um, on Indian women to give up. Uh, especially unwed Indian women, but any younger Indian women to give up their children at birth. Um, and a lot of, you know, the the stereotype was basically that all Indian women were unwed. So, so this pressure was really intense upon them. Um, so a lot of the um, church organizations would sponsor homes where unwed mothers could deliver children, especially unwed Indian mothers. And um, and then they would separate them from their families and uh, isolate them, really, so that they um, didn't have their support structures of people, extended family members who might um, give them all the support they needed to raise a child. Um, so this was some of the most remarkable stories I I found in my research were from young Indian women who experienced intense pressure to give up their children at birth. Um, one of the most telling stories is by Cheryl Spider de Coteau. Um, and she ended up telling her story at the 1974 congressional hearings. But before that, she had gone to court to try to get back the children um, that she had lost. But she just talked about this continuous pressure by a social worker when she was pregnant with her I believe it was her second child um, who even before the child was born was trying to convince her to put it up for adoption and then came to the hospital after she'd given birth and put pressure on her and then continued to visit her at her home afterwards. And um, so she she was able to get back her uh, children through uh, the efforts of the Association on American Indian Affairs legal team, and and then talked about this at the congressional hearings. But I found other accounts of of Indian women who talked about this pressure too, and I I found an incredible account by a social worker who'd witnessed this kind of intimidation being launched at a, a Native woman as well.
0: So of course, some some women did consent to um, to adoption, but you also caution your readers uh, from focusing too much on the question of individual choice in whether mm-hmm. to put up a child for adoption. You write that uh, to many Indian people, children did not belong only to their mothers or their nuclear family, but were also members of extended families, clans, and tribes. Can you talk a bit more about that? The wider impact. Um, Adoption would have on a on a community beyond just the mother or the or the nuclear family.
1: Yeah, well, that was that was certainly true because uh, there's there's many ways to look at this for a tribe, which all of which had experienced incredible devastation in numbers, um, were were rebounding in population by this time, uh, but who are trying to maintain themselves as a unique cultural and political entity uh, to have huge numbers of their children taken away. And the statistics were that 25 to 35% of all Indian children were living separate, separated from their families in this era of the sixties, early seventies. So to have 25 to 35% of all your children taken away, it, it makes it impossible for you to maintain your community and your culture. So there's that level at which this is, is so damaging, but there's the level of extended families as well. Um, in which many family, I mean, uh, so many, uh, every indigenous group I know has a very capacious notion of family, uh, in many cultures, for example, the Navajo, uh, people we would consider aunts, maternal aunts, were also called mothers. So what does it mean when you take a child away from an individual woman? It also is taking that child away from a larger network, a larger family network, a larger tribal network. Um, So it has um, consequences that ripple far uh, out. Uh, from just an individual woman who might be losing her child or an individual woman who might decide that she wants to give up her child for adoption. I
0: want to raise another um, difficult issue in your book, and and that's the issue of involuntary sterilization Mm. of Indian women. Um, How widespread was this phenomenon, and how is it related to the issue of adoption? Um,
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we don't know how widespread it was. Uh, um, Most of the records about involuntary sterilization are still closed. But uh, at the same time as this was going on uh, around the promotion of adoption and and the rising um, opposition to it among American Indians, there uh, was an investigation of uh, involuntary sterilization of American Indian women And the government investigation found that it was actually, they they only studied a small number of the Indian Health Service hospitals where it was being carried out, but they found that it was uh, quite common. Um, And one case that I talk about in the book is a woman who not only experienced uh, removal of her children, but also experienced sterilization at the same time she became pretty well known um, in this era. And I think it's very much linked because both involuntary sterilization and the removal of Indian children are um uh, interventions by the state in the reproduction of uh Indian children and and the reproductive work that uh American Indian women do um, They both have the effect of severing the bond between families and their children and then severing the larger bond between tribes, tribal communities and their children. So they have very much to do with under undermining the viability of not only families to continue to raise their children, but tribes to persist as unique entities.
0: So you just alluded to this rising tide of opposition. Um, that begins to emerge. I mean, for for many of the first years of these programs, uh, these were largely hidden or ignored maybe um, by the wider American public. How did um, Indian women and, and families uh, begin to raise these issues, begin to challenge and push back um, mm-hmm. these programs?
1: Well, that was one of the gratifying parts of my research um, was that I, you know, this is a, this is a hard topic to research and write about and read about, I'm sure. Um, it's troubling. It's deeply troubling um, on so many levels, but it's also um, to read about the women who had the courage to face this pro- problem and to challenge what was going on was, was really inspiring to me. And um, so one of the first, uh, Incidences that I found of people, Indian people, uh, resisting this policy was in 1968, uh, when this sheriff in uh, in North Dakota, Benson County Sheriff, showed up at the door of a, a elderly woman on the Fort Totten Reservation, and she was caring for a young two year old boy named Ivan. Her name was Mrs. Fournier. I don't know her first name. She she uh, it's never in the
0: records. Yeah, I looked for it. I was uh, going to ask a yeah. question about Mrs. Fournier, and I'm like,
1: I know I, I missed her first find her name her somewhere. Name. Yeah, but um, she's taking care of Ivan, and the sheriff shows up at her door and says, "We want Ivan. We found a home for him in Bismarck." Um, and she she was livid and so upset. She'd been caring for him since he was a newborn, and she had she actually had raised 18 children. Some were her own biological children. Some were her foster children of other Indian Indian families. And her life is very indicative of a lot of Indian caregivers, a lot of Indian women who cherished their roles, uh, as mothers who, who were highly valued as caregivers in their societies. And so when the sheriff showed up at her door, she refused to allow Ivan to go with him, um, he persisted in trying to wrest the child away from her. And there were other elderly Fort Totten Reservation, and he kept trying to get these children away. So it just so happened that the Association on American Indian Affairs was, was on the reservation working with the the tribe, which at the time was called the Devil's Lake Sioux and now are called Spirit Lake Sioux. Um, So the, Association of American Indian Affairs or the AAIA was working with them on another issue, land rights of some sort. And um, they learned of these uh, women and other families who were experiencing this intense sort of intimidation. So they organized a mother's delegation. They called it uh, from Fort Totten to go to New York um, where the AAIA was based in Washington, D.C., And they held a number of press conferences and they talked about uh, what they had experienced um, and they called for a government investigation. And the government actually responded uh, immediately to this and and it led to um, some reform in the uh, way that the North Dakota government at least uh, dealt with uh, Indian people around Indian child welfare at this time. So that was like one of the opening salvos in this. But – I found and talked a lot with um, many American Indian social workers, many of them women. Um, this seemed to be um, kind of an outlet for um, well-educated uh, American Indian women. Uh, it was a way, I think, in some ways to combine, uh, in some ways a t- kind of traditional role, um, as somebody who worked in the community around social affairs with uh a fairly well-paying, decent job in in American society at large. So one of the people I speak to a lot in the book or spoke to um, in researching the book was Evelyn Blanchard. Uh, she's of uh, Laguna Pueblo descent, and she was one of the very first American Indian social workers. I believe she got her degree around 1963 from the University of Denver. And she worked for a number of years in Albuquerque and um, she became so um, aware of all the numbers of Indian children who were being removed from their families. And she tried to take what steps she could. She was working, actually, for the BIA. Uh, she tried to take what steps she could uh, to mitigate these policies. And she she told me about how she gained, became increasingly kind of – Frustrated and radicalized by her experiences and and started to be called in as an expert witness in child welfare cases and then she ended up ended up moving up to the Pacific Northwest for a while and working with tribes up there who she found to be um, really radicalized about this issue and and again she she came into contact with lots of American Indian women who were really angry about this issue, really wanted to reclaim the care of Indian children. Um, So what I found were all these incredible uh, indigenous women who were working in their communities, not really usually with a national profile of any kind, but working really hard in their own communities, developing their own programs, um, recruiting Indian foster families, uh, um so, uh, one of the women I uh, again who was doing this was a woman named Maxine Robbins, who was based in the Yakima nation and and, like Evelyn Blanchard, she was a social worker um, Yakima background, and she was she somehow managed to get a grant from the federal government to allow her to develop one of these kinds of programs on her reservation. So these women um eventually came to the attention the Association on American Indian Affairs, which was um, a really interesting organization that had started back in the 1920s, really in part through uh, John Collier. Um, They were an interesting mix of uh, indigenous people who were on their board, um, but the staff was almost entirely non-indigenous. It was a very small staff, three or four people and I talked a lot to uh, former staff members of that organization. And they were really strong allies of um, Indian families in this era who were losing their children. They became the primary advocacy organization for them, and they they were taking on all sorts of legal cases with them. So uh, the book sort of traces the productive... Alliance that developed between a lot of these uh, very local, grassroots, community based efforts, many of them led by women, and the Association on American Indian Affairs, who they all worked together and um, ended up with uh, the legislation passing in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was meant to address um, many of these issues and reverse these practices.
0: So what are some of the key provisions of the Indian Ch- Child Welfare Act?
1: Well, I think the, the most important key provision is that the Act requires that um, where an Indian child is involved in any kind of custody dispute, that it is the tribal courts that hold jurisdiction, not state courts. Um, so it's it's supposed to even... Uh, the Conflict or the custody uh, battle is supposed to start out in tribal court. If it ends up in state court, the state courts are supposed to transfer it to the jurisdiction of tribal courts. So basically, um, it's it's empowering uh, Indian peoples themselves to decide what is the best placement for an Indian child. Um, The act also has a hierarchy of placement, um, it promotes the idea that the best placement for an Indian child would be in, with a member of his or her extended family. Um, and if that placement's not available, they could be placed with uh, another member of their tribe. And if that's not uh, feasible, the child should be placed with another Indian family. And and only then if that's not feasible, is did the Indian Child Welfare Act promote the idea that it was appropriate to place a child with a non-Indian family. Um, It didn't ban the placement of children with non-Indian families. It just um, put it back in the control of Indian people um, and their own court systems about how that should occur. It also uh, provided more legal protections for Indian people. Um, Before this time period, a lot of... um, Courts were not even notifying an Indian mother or an Indian family about court hearings where their rights might be terminated, where what, where they might lose custody of their child. Uh, so this was one of the things the American Association or the Association on American Indian Affairs uh, was um, constantly showing the ways in which Indian families' legal rights had been violated in the most. Um, horrific ways that they weren't even being notified uh, that they were uh, about to lose their child in a court hearing. So the Indian Child Welfare Act tried to uh, restore these legal protections. It tried to, it, it did create a very high level of proof that's needed before a child can be removed from its home. It, um, it has to be uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that the child is suffering from neglect or abuse. It, um, before this time there there's just lots of innuendo uh being used against indian people lots of stereotypes um without often proof of neglect or abuse
0: so i want to um take a step back here um and ask you a bit more about your work more generally Uh, Mm -hmm. scholars in in native american studies who operate uh with a framework of settler colonialism for instance um often understand uh, quite well that what we're talking about is a transnational phenomenon. We're not just talking about the United States Mm -hmm. or just about Canada or just about North America. You've really taken that up in your work, um, both in White Mother to a Dark Race and now in A Generation Removed. Why have you decided uh, to pursue these sort of global transnational dimensions of these stories?
1: Well, I think it it helps to actually prove what I want to prove (laughs) in my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that uh, basically um, if you only look at these cases in isolation from one another and, and don't have any kind of historical perspective on them, it's so easy to say, oh, well, you know, it's for the best interest of this particular child to take them from this particular family. But when you see it as part of not just, um, an incredible sort of um, phenomenon that's going on just in the United States and and a real, what I call a crisis really that occurred in the sixties and seventies when so many Indian children are separated from their families. But when you see it's part of a, a worldwide phenomenon that indigenous peoples in Australia and Canada at this very same time are undergoing the very same policies and practices, um, then to me it becomes kind of incontrovertible evidence that this is not about the failing of a particular family or the failing of a particular tribe, but that it's part of uh, not, not any kind of conspiracy, I don't think. It's part of a common impulse, uh, or in the words of Patrick Wolfe, a common logic that many settler colonial states developed over time, um, where they they really truly believe that the eventual elimination of indigenous peoples is necessary, desirable, um, inevitable, really, and that the policies that they develop, um, they they all lead naturally to this notion that eventually indigenous peoples won't exist as distinctive people. So for me, this transnational comparative approach. It's inherently interesting to me. It's just so fascinating to me that this is going on in all these places at the same time. And it's, it's also, I mean, it's very interesting to me to see what's going on in Australia and Canada in that um, both of those nations have engaged in a kind of real reckoning with their past in various Ways, I mean, um, and and to various success or not, um, but mm-hmm. they've been having very broad public discourses about this, and that fascinates me that that's happening there in those two nations, but but basically in the United States we're not having that public discourse, and we haven't had it, and it it that kind of interests me uh, why some settler colonial states have have reckoned with this, and others have not.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you caution at the end of the book about reconciliation though as a as the model necessarily for justice in the face of these these crimes mm-hmm. um, What concerns you about that model of reconciliation at least as it's been carried out um, in certain ways in canada and i'm I'm less familiar with Australia but um mm-hmm. if not reconciliation, then what
1: well. There are a lot of Indigenous critics of the concept of reconciliation. I think there's a lot of suspicion that it's really just assimilation dressed up in a new title. Um, And I I think there's some evidence for that in the processes that are going on in Canada and Australia that for some non-Indigenous people in those places, the idea of reconciliation is all about, well, let's give Indigenous people a forum to, to... you know, air their grievances, and then let's move on. Let's, we'll even apologize, but then let's get on with it. You know, let's close the book on that chapter of our history and get on with it. And that's not what I don't think indigenous people want. I I mean, I really think the key issues for them are justice, Um, Sovereignty, self-determination, and so um, I think there are many indigenous people and many allies of indigenous people who have a much wider, broader definition of reconciliation that includes justice, that includes uh, recompense, reparations, redress for the crimes that have been committed against indigenous peoples in the past. I think in past eras, many people thought that uh, too. I think the people who promoted adoption in the 50s and 60s, they had this vision that they were doing this wonderful thing for indigenous peoples, that they were reaching out to them, they were rescuing their children. They saw this as an act of reconciliation. So, um, I think we always have to be cautious about that uh, and and that Um, You know, I think it's more important to um, listen to what indigenous people say it is that they want and and let them define what um, how what direction uh, we should be going and uh, respond to them rather than coming up with these grand plans and then foisting them upon um, indigenous communities. So it's um, I guess that's why I have that somewhat suspicious or. Uh, ambivalent view of that.
0: So I've been speaking with Margaret Jacobs, Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, an author of A Generation Removed, The Fostering and Adoption of Indigenous Children in the Post-War World. It's just out from the University of Nebraska Press. And as I hope you've gathered from our conversation, it's a really remarkable book. Before I let you go, Professor Jacobs, I always like to ask, and, and it's uh, maybe not the best thing to think about after you've just succeeded in publishing one, but um, what are you working on next? What are you thinking about next? Is there more, now that you've written um, two books over the course of uh, a century um, dealing with very similar issues, though the books stand alone in many ways, um, is there more to this story to tell? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I am sort of between projects. I'm not. I haven't tackled anything big yet. However, I am working on an article, and you won't be surprised what it's about. It's about truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm comparing what happened in Canada and Australia, and um, as far as truth and reconciliation in the last couple decades, mm-hmm. uh, with with the lack of that in the United States, and and kind of asking. Why hasn't this happened in the United States, and does it need to happen here?
0: That was Margaret Jacobs, author of A Generation Removed, The Fostering and Adoption of Indigenous Children in the Post-War World, released last year by the University of Nebraska Press. You can find us on the web at com, where you can listen to all of the past podcasts. We're also on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein.